Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. If you did not bring a Bible, you're welcome to take one from under the seats in front of you. It's page 962, page 962 in the black hardback Bible, where we will be today. We are finishing up a series uh, on the study of the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And the title of our series has been United, United, Together in the Gospel. And our one aim throughout this series has been to study and learn how it is that we live united together as a people in the gospel of Jesus Christ because kind of the sub-theme of our, of our series has been this, that unity fuels God's people for mission. Unity fuels God's people for the mission of His kingdom in the world. And so before I actually read the scriptures today, I want to ask a question and say what we've talked about for all of these weeks and uh, uh, four and a half months now, I want us to ask, what is gospel unity? Maybe I should have started with this in some realm But I want to culminate this series with this question, what is gospel unity? The word unity to Christians doesn't necessarily mean everything that is assigned to it as a definition in the dictionary. One definition or one part of the definition of the word unity states an absence of diversity and unvaried or uniform character. Now, I look at that part of the definition and I say, actually, we know that our God provides a diversity of giftings among His people and even a diversity of people among His people. Uh, From every nation, tribe, and tongue will people bow at His throne to worship. And there are a diversity of gifts of assignments and of activities within his body. And so not every finer aspect of the dictionary definition of unity is what we're giving to. But the essence of unity as we have discussed it simply means the state of being one. So oneness with God. And what God calls the church to do is to live united Because he himself is united. He is three in one, one in three. And unity in the local church displays the oneness of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in order to carry out his work, his united work in the world. And so the way that Paul does this is he sets forth a faithful explanation of the gospel and how it is that God wants to work in us to build us up in our faith as we live out by faith in Jesus. And and I talked about this throughout the series. But what he does, I want you to turn back with me to the first chapter of this letter. And I'm going to point out what I'd call three pillars of the Christian life and ultimately of the church that forged this gospel unity. And the first pillar is found in the first chapter and in verse 18 where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of 
of God. The first pillar of our faith and of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that he came as God who became a man. He died on the cross, was put in the grave three days later, was raised from the grave by the Father, and 40 days later ascended to the heavens where he now sits alive at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And one day he will come again, the scriptures say, and they tell us that in that time he will finally and completely put the evil one, Satan, into his rightful place in full subjection, the scripture says, and he will return him to the Father as his own footstool upon which he will rest his heel as he rules for eternity. And at that time, Satan will have no more presence with or among people. And so we have this full and final hope in the word of the cross. What appeared as ultimate defeat on the earth was ultimate victory in the heavenlies. And then the second pillar we have is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It is the spirit-filled person. Let me read chapter, chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. It says this, Now we have received, Paul's talking about those who have placed their faith in Jesus, not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. And so the second pillar of our unity is that God has placed within us his Holy Spirit that we might live in such a way that we're built up in our faith, discerning the will of God as we go about our life in order to walk with him. And we're able to do that because He is with us. He inhabits us. He lives within us. And so this forms the second pillar of the Christian life and of the church. The third pillar is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And look with me in verses 16 and 17. And this is a major shift in understanding. Verse 16 says this. And remember, every time I say you in these two verses... It is a plural you. It is not an individual or singular you. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so the third pillar of gospel unity for the church and for every Christian is simply this. That you are no longer someone that goes to the temple of God as a Christian, but rather you become the temple. That as the Spirit of God inhabits you and fills you, you become the temple of the Holy God. And as such, we, church, 
form a temple among which God's Spirit and His presence abides continually. And that's our shift in understanding, not that we're trying to get to God, but that God has come to us. And that God fills us and He makes us His own and He sends us forth as His own people, inhabited and empowered by His presence. We are manifesting the spiritual, excuse me, the physical presence of God in the world as the church, as He inhabits us by His Holy Spirit. And so, what I want you to walk away with today, really in culminating this entire study, as we've walked through and discussed so many topical issues and how the scriptures lead us is simply this, that gospel unity strengthens the church to endure in kingdom mission. Gospel unity strengthens the local church, every Christian, in order that we might endure in kingdom mission. I want to talk to you today about true unity about true unity and what it means for us to persevere, for us to endure in God's kingdom mission. You know, in in our church's life, we're only 11 and a half or so years old, and when I think about all God has done, uh, specifically over the last five, six months in our church's life and where he's leading us as we make plans for the future and consider and discern what he's leading us to do, uh, I can't imagine a more necessary and helpful study for us as a church. And so we, we culminate this study by asking with clear application, not only for every individual's life, but for our life as the church. How do we life point? How do we live united in order to faithfully display the oneness of our triune God? And that's where Paul brings us in this study. I want to offer four encouragements from chapter 16 today that I believe will strengthen us to endure in unity for kingdom mission. Go with me to verses 1 through 4 and let's begin reading the Word of God. The Word of God says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right, let's pause there for a moment. Now, the last chapter of Paul's letters are kind of an accumulation, and sometimes it's just the last portion of the last chapter. But what Paul is saying here in this chapter are final concluding directives, encouragements, and thoughts for the people in the church at Corinth to help them endure and to continue persevering faithfully in the mission that God has given to them. And while we can't make a direct application of what he says, we can have an application from, his, from understanding what he writes to Corinth and how it applies to us as Christians today. And the first encouragement that he begins with is simply this, that gospel unity fuels faithful stewardship. Gospel unity fuels faithful stewardship. There was a distinct need in Jerusalem at that time. Um, uh, the need for um, um, 
uh, encouragement, the need for um, uh, resources because a famine was setting in, and the persecution was most severe at the center of where the mission had begun, Jerusalem himself. And so Paul was calling on many of the churches to send offerings so the church could be encouraged and the church could be provided for in that. And his direction for the Corinthians provide for us what we understand as a sound biblical stewardship principle. And it builds on faithful obedience and it extends to generosity that reflects the Lord Jesus himself. And he basically says this, that faithful stewardship of the people begins with a regular systematic giving that acknowledges God's faithful provision. That's where he said, in proportion or as God has prospered you. So what God wants you, Christian, as uh, as, a, as a faithful follower of him to be about doing is every week, systematically, regularly, giving time to consider the way that God has prospered and blessed you and responding to God with a physical or a demonstration of that by giving to his work. That's what faithful stewardship is all about. It's one part of it anyway. Really, faithful stewardship is about the whole of life But money is such a critical part of life that when we give our money faithfully and generously, we demonstrate that our money doesn't have us. You see, faithful stewardship has been one of the longest standing operational principles for our church. The first servant team that was ever established before we were even a church was charged with the oversight of faithful stewardship. And I I would argue as a word of testimony, not a word of argument, that the influence, that the effect, and that the blessing of the priority of stewardship for LifePoint has propelled us in many ways. First of all, to grow and to develop and mature as faithful stewards in the church. We've seen God do this through men and women who are called to this kind of ministry and have this conviction for themselves and want to encourage others. To experience significant gospel breakthrough in people's lives who were condemned in debt, but who the Lord led them to work their way out not only of debt, but from freedom from the love of money. We've blessed many churches, we've blessed many pastors and many leaders, not only locally and regionally, but far and wide, even into other countries because of faithful stewardship in our church. And our, we've been able to resource and expanding and growing and developing missional impact well beyond our own walls. And so God leads us into new horizons that are far greater than just our ability and beyond us so that he can bless us, so that he can increase us, and he can, hear me, use us to resource his mission in the world. You see, God's clear plan to resource the mission that he gives his people to, the mission of the local church, are the faithful tithes and offerings of his people who are the local church church. It's not just go find it and apply it, but rather it is let the Lord work and watch him demonstrate his faithfulness through our faithfulness as well. And so the gospel grows every Christ follower in faithful stewardship that the church might live in unity to resource God's kingdom mission in the world. This is the first encouragement that we draw that Paul is compelling upon the Corinthians, but he compels upon every Christian today. 
is that gospel unity, the oneness of God among us, fuels faithful stewardship through us. And so I pause for just a moment, as I'll do with each of these encouragements, and just simply apply to your lives. Christian, are you with us? Are you united in faithful stewardship? Are we together? The second encouragement that we find here, continuing in verse 5, Through verse 12, Paul writes this, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And then look down at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, excuse me, Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Another common element of the ending of Paul's letters is that he writes commendations for people who will be passing through the church to minister in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he does this because, as was the tradition of that day, when a minister came through to minister among the church the gospel of Jesus Christ, they didn't necessarily know if it was a credible person or not. And so that individual would carry a letter of commendation that said, I come upon the recommendation of Paul. I come upon the recommendation of the church at Galatia or whatever the the entity recommending them would be. And so Paul always provides a list of his co-laborers so that if any of them pass through the church in that area, the church will know this person comes with the recommendation of Paul and we should grant to them the access to minister freely the gospel of Jesus Christ among us. But what he tells us is much more than just who will be visiting them. He tells us that gospel uh, uh, unity fuels God's people to serve the mission. In other words, the mission was not just about Paul's platform. This wasn't about Paul being a spiritual elite or a superhero, of which he never allowed that label to be pressed upon him. Paul said this, I have trained up these people. They will preach a faithful gospel message to you. Because the gospel and the unity of the gospel among the people of God in the local church fuels all of God's people to serve the mission. 
And that's the larger point that Paul is making here. I want to share with you three principles that direct us and remind us in serving gospel mission that I believe Paul grants to us, though indirectly, in these verses. The first one is simply this, that the priority of gospel advancement is always greater than just the opportunity to do activity, no matter how much immediate good that activity might produce. That's what he says. I'm not going to come to you just now so I can see you on my way through, but I am prioritizing the places that God is leading me to so that I can spend time with you and instruct and teach and labor seriously for the gospel. The same way with Apollos, the same way with Timothy, the same way with Steph, um, I missed his name here, Stephanus. And so because of that, Paul's teaching us these principles that the the priority of gospel advancement always reigns over just the opportunity to do some activity. It's the priority for the labor of the gospel that's usually established by necessity, which determines our next direction and our steps for mission, not just the priority of accommodation or the priority of comfort of what we can do. And so the focus priority of resources should be determined as well by this gospel necessity to serve the mission. And that's what we see. You see a clear vision of what the gospel is doing among God's people in the local church focuses the church to say no to all the things that are Maybe so or not inherently good, but distracting ultimately from the priority that God is giving to the church. And this is how gospel unity fuels us to serve the mission. A clear vision focuses the church to say no to good, but secondary matters in order to focus resources and energies on the first priority of gospel advancement the second principle he lays out for us is this that opposition always accompanies and usually hear me signifies priority for gospel work what does he say i'm headed to ephesus there is a great amount of gospel work there although great opposition awaits me (laughs) yeah that's kind of an understatement if you study what happened to Paul in Ephesus. But the point is this, how often do we dismiss advancement because opposition arises? How often do we go, man, if it were God's will, nothing would be wrong with it, right? <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Every kind of, of opposition arises when we are faithfully serving God's mission. Some think opposition is, is, is meaning that something is wrong or something's not working or God's not in it. But actually, the opposite is almost always true. Because true gospel mission raises alarms and activates the attention of Satan's serpents. That's what it does. It, it throws off alarms that brings them and they, they attack 
where they are being most effective so the gospel can't get a foothold into that place. They want to protect where they have the strongest strongholds in people's lives and among people. And they want to fight most fiercely where they are most threatened. I mean, Satan's greatest opposition sometimes arises from his direct activity, but it often arises and his strongest work often happens just simply through sin's remaining presence in us. When God calls us to new horizons or to new steps of righteous obedience, that's usually when Satan's strongest opposition within us goes, man, I just don't know. If God makes me do that, I'm going to have to give up this. As if staying here with this would be greater than what God's calling us to. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, we're never honest with ourselves in these arguments. It's always someone else's fault, something other than us or outside of us reasoning that just, I mean, just makes perfect sense to us. But what it always does is thwarts God's will and subverts his walk in our life. You see, Satan's opposition always accompanies gospel work, but it should never be a determining reason to stop the work of God's mission. Let me give you some of Satan's opposition in a personal illustration. Sometimes when people um, first place their faith in Jesus and become a Christian, not, not long after that, some of Satan's strongest opposition arises in their life. They begin to serve him, and it's like as they, as they move forward and gain speed and momentum, a wall of opposition arises, and they slam into it, and they go, whoa, whoa, what happened? I must have been on the wrong path. Actually, I would argue this, and I don't have time to unpack this at great length, but simply to say the greater opposition from Satan and his serpents that you face and the greater wrangling of sin that you're wrestling with within and trying to apply the gospel to it and have a new understanding about it is most likely the strongest indicator that in fact you are following Jesus. That in fact you are believing him, that you're trusting him because he's purging and he's rooting out sin. And I'm telling you, Satan doesn't like it. And the evil one is flaring and he's angered over it and he's attacking. But he is a defeated foe. So no matter what wall he builds in front of you, it cannot stop you. For the gates of hell will not prevail in your life any more than they're going to prevail in the overarching trajectory of the kingdom of God in this world. You see, gospel unity fuels us to serve God's mission. And Christians are not called to avoid Satan's attack and Satan's schemes, but by faith in Jesus to let their life be a demonstration of God's overcoming power through them. Listen to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Christian winning is not up to you. Trusting is. The war is won. That's what the word of the cross reminds us. And however God chooses to use our life, 
we can know that it will not be for anything other than the glory of his victory. Now, if we will rest in that, we will not grow anxious about anything else. That's what gospel unity does for us. The third principle he lays down is simply this. I feel like I need to prepare you for this one. You're not going to like this. I mean, you're not going to like it at all. Are you ready? Change is the constant of mission. Change. Not that change. No. Not that change. Change from who we were to who God is making us to be. From where we are to where he is leading us. And the path in between that is called change. Where he is taking us is transformation. Complete, full. And if you demand to stay the same, you will not know the change that only he can bring. And isn't that what we do? We hold on and we fight and kick as somebody's trying to pull us off of our stronghold. No, I am not going there. That is not the best for me. Even when we're convinced that God's leading us in that place, we hold on to things in our life that we know are thwarting and preventing us from following Jesus because we don't want to change. Why? Because we had rather relish in the comfort of the lack of change, even when we know it's worse, but we know it, than we had walked by faith into the unknown of God's will for our life. And that's what he's telling us, friends. Change is like the second hand of the clock. As it tick-tocks around second by second, it moves all the other hands. And not change just for the sake of change, but change from who and where we are more into the likeness of who God is in Jesus Christ and where he is leading us in his will. How can we? I mean, we're, we're in gospel ministry. We love to celebrate the work of transformation. And yet, so quickly, the church itself can go, wait a minute, I don't think that we need to change. Right? I, I mean, man, we will dig our heels in over anything and go, you know, what we've always done worked. It did. But the world is so different today than it was when we did that. Right? Everything else is changing except for God. Every season, every situation, every circumstance demands new approaches, new strategies, new priorities, and new people serving in new ways. If God left us to repeat what we had already accomplished, here's what we would do. We would know we could do it, and we'd remove him from the mix. Would we not? We've already done that. Come on, get honest with yourself. The gospel matures us. We love to talk about growth and maturity, right? The essence of that is change. Change. Oh, stop using that word, man. The gospel matures us as God works in his people and among his people to lead them to new 
works. And so he lists these number of leaders and workers that would pass through Corinth. And he's encouraging them. And he's encouraging the church to embrace each one and to follow their leadership. And, And hear me, friends. The fellowship of the church doesn't always have the opportunity of long tenure before being called to follow. But fellowship in the church remains essential so that mission is not thwarted or stunted. And that's what Paul teaches the Thessalonians too. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 and 13. He says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love. Because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. So I, I wanna, I'm, I'm, I'm a little compelled at this point to let you in on a little secret, or maybe not so secret. The leaders of this church don't have all the answers, in case you thought otherwise. We do not lead flawlessly. There's never been an expectation of that. And we will make more mistakes, probably more in the future multiplied than we've made in the past. There is no question about that. But here's the good news. You don't follow us because of us. You follow leaders because of Jesus. And when you follow leaders because of Jesus, you can trust that Jesus is sufficient to do what He alone can do. He is worthy and powerful enough to keep us. And so serving the mission means that whether you are currently leading or following, we are all walking with Jesus as he leads his church. Gospel unity fuels us to serve God's mission through the local church. I'm compelled to pause here again, Christian, and ask, are you with us? Are you united in serving the mission? Are we together? The third encouragement we see is that gospel unity holds us to be the church. Look at verse 13. Gospel unity holds us to be the church. Paul just pops off four quick directives here. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What does it mean to be the church? We talk about that we're human beings. We talk about that our identity is important. But what does it mean to be the church? Here's what I think very simply and concisely it means. That our identity determines our priorities and compels our actions as God's people. Just simply put. And so the priorities that we establish and the activity in which we engage holds us true to the convictions and to the values that define us. That's what it means to be the church. And he says this, first of all, he says, be watchful. Be watchful. Anytime Paul is using this term to watch, he often uh, aligns it with prayer. So watch and pray. Watch and wait. It's not a sense of apathy or lethargy, but rather watchfulness is alertness. It's be prepared and be ready because those things are essential for faithfulness. And so as we love God and we love people as our defining commands, our watchfulness means that we must know God and we must know people. 
It's inherent because we're alert, we're ready, and we must keep things in their proper orders. And and so alertness to God's work in the world forms a first kind of posture for every Christian that we're watchful in the things of God because God doesn't send us out to go figure something out to do for him. He just says, I'm already at work. Come join where I'm leading you. While we remain watchful of God's work in the world, we will see the ministry priorities and opportunities to love people in Jesus' name arise all around us. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm so that we don't get distracted by serving lesser goods or, or being busy and falling prey to detrimental agendas or causes, but rather we hold to the only power that can hold us, and that's the gospel. You see, faithful obedience, hear me, this would be the most radical thing I say all morning. Faithful obedience to Jesus is the most radical countercultural life that a Christian can live in this world. And it is our Christian mandate. And it demonstrates how glorious and how powerful and how faithful God is when we simply say to the world, I cannot, I should not, I am not, but God is. He can because he does. You see, the more chaotic and confusing the problems of our world, the more confusing the situations we find ourselves in, and the more complicated the details of our circumstances, the more laser-focused we must remain on the gospel of Jesus Christ to hold us. You see, Jesus is immortal, the Bible tells us. Jesus is imperishable. Jesus is the Lord of the impossible, and he is eternally immovable. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 13, after they are to dress themselves in the armor of God, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. There's the promise of opposition that will come against us. And having done all, when you are spent, you're done, you're tapped, you're out, it is drained in every respect, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you're done. The most significant phrase in this verse are the last two words, to stand. Wonder why you keep falling? Probably because you're standing in the wrong strength. You're standing in self more than in Jesus. You see, Jesus holds every life that by faith stands on him. He says this, act like men. Let me just simply say this. Paul wants them to grow up in life and in the faith. He stated this already in chapter 13 when he said this. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That's a pretty good definition for maturity, isn't it? Giving up childish ways. You say, what childish ways? I say, well, just keep living and we'll point them out as you hit them. We'll probably talk again in the next few minutes. Maturity is essential to the church. I read a book this week called The End of Men and the Rise of Women. It is a book that 
that, that uh, basically follows the trajectory of, uh, of, of the rise of feminist ideology in the world today. And it's not so much that the author is championing this as much as she's just following it and showing how it's carried itself out in every structure and paradigm and institution in the world and, and how each of them in different ways have nailed the coffin of masculinity shut. The end of man. It's over. He's something else. He's, he's not a he anymore as masculinity once was. There's only one factor that she forgot to calculate in, and that's simply this, that God's word that goes forth that always accomplishes the purpose for which God sent it out. So it really doesn't matter what it looks like is inevitable in the world. What matters is what God has already said and what he will bring about from his word. This isn't about whether men win over women because God never put those two in competition. He put them together to complement one another. And so we don't have to wonder who's going to win that war. God's going to win that war. He's already won that war because he's already spoken the end which shall come. And what he has said to us is is that he's ordained men to lead in the church. This isn't an anti-woman agenda. We hear it that way because, because of all that that author said is correct. We've been influenced and inundated to believe all of these things and to buy into the things that seem so real in front of us that our eye sees and our ear hears. But what we must remember in our heart is what God has said. Satan's greatest ploy is to distract men with childish preoccupations. And not everything that prevents us from growing up is inherently evil, but anything that prevents us from maturing in life and as a Christian is serving Satan's plan in your life and thwarting God's will for your life. That's the point. I shared my greatest fear for life point a couple of weeks ago at our last men's night. And I'll repeat it for the whole church now. That men would give in to the spirit of fear that Paul reminds Timothy was not given to them by God. It's the fear, however it is expressed, of following Jesus by faith to where he calls us instead of relinquishing into the own comforts and preferences of our own life. God designed your life and he intended your life for leadership. And the fact that it's hard, that it's threatening, or that it otherwise makes you not want to only proves that sin is dominating in you. And it will continue to do so until you learn to submit to Jesus, repent of your sins, and expend your life to serve his kingdom. He said, what does the church have to do with my life? That right there. Because gospel unity fuels serving the mission. He says this, he says, be strong. Be as the one who fills you is. That's not very good English. But I'm just trying to work it out. Don't be strong because you've accomplished a lot. Be strong because you're learning to live your life in in more humble submission every day to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is increasing as you decrease. The gospel strengthens so the power of God in Jesus Christ is lived out through us. And friends, gospel unity holds us to be the church. I want to pause here again and just say, Christian, are you with us? Are you united in growing up, in maturing in Jesus Christ? Are 
we together. The final encouragement is in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Gospel unity means we let love prevail. You see, Paul's exhortation in verse 14 alludes to the reverberation that we create in the world by the way we live. Kind of like the wake that's created behind a boat. There's a reverberation of our lives. And the way we live matters for what we leave behind. We talk about heritage and legacy and those kinds of things. I'm a sucker for outdoor shows. Like my family is tired of watching the Alaskan bush people. I'm enthralled with it. I'd like to try it for a week. Recently, I watched a show called Master Trackers, and basically they sent this woman out to get lost in the wood as best she could. She wasn't lost, but that's the idea. And then an hour or two later, they bring these two master trackers in who do this for a living, but do these exercises to stay sharp on their skills. And they begin at her last known point, and they begin to search for clues in the ground. And finding nothing more than small impressions of the boot and twigs that she snapped from stepping on them and brushes that she's moved uh, from, from walking through it, they begin to use their skills to search diligently and, and to locate signs of her presence. So, so all of these things lead them and ultimately they find her. You know, when Paul says, let love prevail, may, may the trail that we leave be one of love. That's what he's telling us. May the trail that we leave be tracked by people finding those little expressions, those little imprints, those little indentions where we have loved people well. Sometimes not radically changing their life, sometimes just making the stand in the grocery line a little more bearable. I don't know if you can do that at Walmart, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, that that people might know where we've trekked by the aroma of love with, with which we bless by leaving the wake of love that trails behind us or the lyric of love that reverberates after we're gone. May we continue to impact people long after we have left because the nature and the character, the very essence of God has been left with them by us. Let love prevail. Let let it flow. Let us not be satisfied to simply do the right thing, but let us do the right thing, truth, with the right way, the right spirit, love. When we complete our work for the gospel, may the resounding blessing of love fill people's eyes and fill their hearts and fill their minds and fill their souls that they might be left to look to Jesus and to Jesus alone to realize He is the one that made an impact in so-and-so or whoever that was his life. I want that kind of love in my own life. Let love prevail. Gospel unity means we let love prevail. Christian, are you with us? Are you united to to let love prevail in your life? Are we together? For gospel unity strengthens the church to endure in kingdom mission. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. And I simply want to end today in this way. I want to say to each of us who are Christians, 
that we know, we understand that the Lord wants to use our life for His purpose, for His honor, and for His glory. And so I want to ask you today, what's standing between you and God's will being perfectly lived out in you? Is it an understanding of who He is? Is it a, an understanding of what he wants? I, I don't know. Maybe it's a burden. Maybe the pressure of life's burdens have set so heavily up on you that you don't want to consider what God is saying to you because you, you just fear that it might not remove that burden. I say quite the, honest, uh, quite the opposite. If you'll be honest with yourself and honest with God this morning, he'll take that burden regardless of where he leads you. Just, just... I, 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 in some ways, I dare you, but most of all, I invite you to be honest with God today. It's not like he doesn't already know. And to, to trust the one whose name you claim to take you from where you are to, to what he has for you. And just to rest and to trust in that. For many of you here today, or at least some of you, you you're not a Christian. You you would say, I've never come to a point where uh, I've put my faith in Jesus. I'm just beginning to learn who he is or what I know about him. I've just never trusted him before. But in some way, you feel that there is a sense in which God is trying to speak to you today. Maybe you're familiar with that. Maybe you're not familiar with his voice. But you sense there's something different that's trying to say something to you today. Might I just invite you to accept that it is the Spirit of God through the Word of God that is speaking to you today. And what God is saying to you first is that I love you. I accept you. You can't earn your way to me. You don't have to earn your way to me. If you will simply receive me by faith today. Why not today? What good reason? What rational process can be followed today to say that Jesus is not worthy of your faith? He is the one who died. He was put in a grave. The authorities of the world, the greatest superpower that's ever lived, sealed him in the grave and put their finest guard there to make sure he didn't get out. And he got out. God has overcome death. He's crushed it, he's crushed sin, and he's crushed Satan. And the question is simply this. What about him is unworthy of your faith? Nothing. Why not today? Put your trust in him and become a Christian. Let me pray for us. God, help us in this time to hear very clearly the gospel and to trust what you want to do through it. And Lord, in this time, to let our hearts be open to what your Spirit is saying and to say yes to you, to follow you. Christian, I ask you today, are you ready to say yes and to follow? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus. It's not a complicated algorithm or a set of accomplishments that you must achieve. Rather, from the genuine honesty of your heart, you can simply say, God, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that you sent him to earth. That he died upon the cross as punishment for my sin, for my wrongdoing.'"
and that you rose him from the grave three days later to show that you love him, that you love people, that you've conquered death, that you've conquered sin. And I want to trust him that in the same way that he died the death that I should have died, I can receive the life that he now gives. And to put your faith in Jesus and become a Christian. Are you ready to do that today? God's waiting to receive you. Lord, have your way in this time and in this place. In Jesus' name.